but for every parent listening to your show, everything you said is accurate. This is, uh, the internet is a playground for pedophiles. And yet yeah, they said this wasn't offensive. And that was to the mother, correct? There were known hashtags on Twitter that are specifically designed to trade child pornography. How long did it take before that content was actually removed or flagged? And now, the safety zone. Welcome, folks, to the Safety Zone. This is Melinda Ron. I'm here with Mike McCarty. And we have a special guest today, Mike, Lisa Haba from the Haba Law Firm. And really an honor to have her here because we're going to talk about the Twitter lawsuit. And Lisa is one of the attorneys that is handling that, along with the National Center on the Sexual Exploitation and who has also brought the lawsuit up against Twitter. So, Mike, why don't you fill us in on how we even connected with Lisa and with this whole case? Yeah. Well, I wrote an article last week, I believe it was. It was published in the Christian Post, really just an op-ed that I had pulled together talking about some of the concerns I had as I read through this lawsuit that we could shut down political discourse very quickly on a social media platform, but yet we could let child pornography kind of run rampant. And after the article was posted, we started talking with uh, the National Center for Sexual Exploitation, connected us with Lisa. So Lisa, we're excited to have you on the show, talk a little bit about what you're doing. I'd love to have you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your law firm. You seem to have a very niche, specialized, driven passion, I would think, in terms of protecting women and children. So welcome and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much, Mike and Melinda, for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. Yes, my name is Lisa Haba. I'm a partner at the Haba Law Firm, and our firm is based in the Orlando area of Florida, but we take cases all over the country, and most of our cases deal with the context of human trafficking, sexual abuse, and the exploitation of women and children. Some of how we got into this is we have a number of partners at our firm that all focus on this niche area, but we all started as prosecutors in Florida. And Mm -hmm. as for me, myself, I was a prosecutor in the sex crimes division at the state attorney's office for many years, and it really got incredibly interested in the fact that the concept of prostitution was very interwoven with human trafficking, but nobody was really addressing human trafficking. And nobody was looking at how somebody who was engaged in commercial sex might not be doing that voluntarily, but might be being manipulated and exploited for somebody mm-hmm. else's profit and gain. So we started looking at that issue and many years later, here we are, and we're taking now the approach of trying to hold businesses and entities that would allow and profit from human trafficking to continue in society and hold those people, those entities accountable because we all have a duty and an obligation in society to help those less fortunate and anybody that would mm-hmm. profit off the exploitation of the person has to be stopped. Oh, absolutely, Lisa. I mean, my goodness, what a what an incredible mission you have. And we are so grateful for you to, out of your busy schedule, take time and be with us today. No, it's my pleasure. Well, I find it interesting because for about 25 years, almost 30 years, I hate to admit that now, I've been working in primarily violence against women and children. I started out very similar to you, not a prosecutor, but a police officer. And I actually 
was going to leave law enforcement within the first year because I got into it to help people and found out real quickly we weren't really helping anybody. I was a police officer in Nashville, Tennessee, but I ended up helping start what became the largest community-based domestic violence program in the U.S. back in the early 90s. And I can tell you, we would have never gotten to that point had there not been this pivotal case in 1985 where Tracy Thurman sued and a judge allowed her to sue the police department in Torrington, Connecticut for failing to protect her in a domestic violence case because so much of what we were dealing with, I believed in it morally. It was just infused in me by my parents that you fight against injustice. And I was shocked that that same uh, feeling of injustice was not going to drive change very quickly within the system. But what drove change was you're getting into my pockets, the litigation. So I understand the role of litigation and how that can help organizations move the right direction when maybe they don't want to move the right direction. So I'm curious how you got involved with this particular lawsuit at Twitter, if you could just kind of explain to us how you came to get involved in this. Sure. I became involved because, and like I mentioned, I'm from the greater Orlando area in Florida, we have a client who retained our law firm to handle this matter against Twitter about a year ago. And mm. when he came to us and he explained what had happened and the, the travesty that Twitter in, inflicted upon him and how much revictimization he had been through, we knew this was a case that potentially could change a lot. And we truly, truly hoped it would not only change the climate at Twitter, but hopefully add new accountability and new understanding into social media and the internet as a whole. Because although, you know, we certainly need to have a free and open internet, there also has to be accountability, just like we have in society, for those that would participate in criminal activity. This isn't a unique situation. No, absolutely not. It's definitely not unique. We've had, we've talked to many, many people that have had very similar experiences to this. People that have talked about other platforms where their children have been exploited, people that have been exploited through Twitter's platform, and you wouldn't believe how many people have had images of a similar nature of the child sexual abuse material put on Twitter and have have had either they've been refused or failed to take be taken down. And I guess that's what I'm trying to reconcile as a parent, less as a professional and more as a parent. I'm looking at this political season and boy, do I not want to talk about politics, but it's such a such a divisive political season we've just come through. But how quickly I noticed that social media platforms and Twitter being one of them could flag content and within hours sometimes remove that person or that content. So help us understand how long it took for your client once they made Twitter aware of this. How long did it take before that content was actually removed or flagged? You know, it's a great question, Mike. It took nine days. And in the world of the internet, nine days is an eternity. What's staggering, we put this in our complaint, is that there was a screenshot taken on day two when the content was was posted. On day two, there was 167,000 views of that pornographic image of these two boys. Hmm. And there was that same view, not only have been viewed that many times, but have been retweeted over 2,200 times. So if you think about that on day two, if we're already at those staggering numbers, imagine what it was at, eight, at day nine. I mean, I'm sure the numbers were the hundreds of millions, if not billions of views and retweets. And every single time that image is retweeted, every time that vi- image is viewed, that's a victimization of our client. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I think a lot of people may be looking at this and thinking, okay, you had a pornographer, somebody that posted this. But I think when you start to really absorb this, it kind of gives you a sense of what's out there in the internet and the social media world, right? And there was an appetite for this information. But I think what along with exactly that, what I guess we think is far more concerning is that you might have a bad actor who wants to view and distribute child pornography. And I'm sure law enforcement will address that. But what about the entity, the legitimate business that is getting a sanctuary to these bad actors to operate? Yes. Twitter has a, has a mechanism, and we've alleged this in our complaint against Twitter, that enables these people to operate in plain sight and have a safe haven in which to conduct this illegal activity. So we talked about it in our complaint quite a bit, but something as simple as they have a search feature. There are known hashtags on Twitter that are specifically designed to trade child pornography. Mm. First question is, why would those exist on Twitter? We're, we're well beyond freedom of speech if we're talking about a hashtag that enables illegal content that is not protected to be disseminated. But when you type in one of those known hashtags, what's even more concerning is in the in the, the drop down menu for the search bar, it gives you if you type in a certain hashtag, it'll give you suggestions of other words that you can type in to further your search. Well, when I typed in hashtag, and I'm not going to say it publicly, because I don't want to disseminate the information, but hashtag and then this this horrible word that would allow people to potentially distribute child pornography, it suggested I put the word young in as an additional word to in my search terms. Mm. What a concern that, that Twitter would have such a feature built into their platform. And furthermore, we have this going back and forth when these same things are brought to Twitter's attention. It's not that they weren't aware of them. They were aware. And they sent an email back to our client saying, we reviewed your content and we don't find this to be a violation of our policies. See, that, Lisa, is something that when I was reading up on it, I it just floored me. I thought they're very quick to see offensive something. And I, and I might add, we're seeing this on the left and the right, social media banning people. And yet yeah, they said this wasn't offensive. And that was to the mother, correct? They said it to the child. They asked the child not only, so the mother and the child both reported it to Twitter separately. Mm. And Twitter's response after many days of waiting finally responded with, please provide proof of age and identity. So he provided his Florida driver's license which proved exactly how old he was at the time this happened, as well as by the time he submitted it, he was still a minor. Mm -hmm. So when this was submitted, that's after receiving his proof of age. That's when they decided that it did not violate their policies. And they claim, they proclaim to have a zero tolerance policy for sexual abuse material. But obviously in practice, we, we are seeing very clearly something else. And I understand that it was only blocked once the mother was introduced to somebody, I believe, in Homeland Security. And that's what kind of spurred Twitter taking some action. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Homeland Security reached out and through the official government channels was able to get Twitter to finally do the socially responsible and lawful thing of taking down this illegal image. And finally reporting it to the National Center on Missing Exploited Children nine days later. This cannot be shocking for social media platforms. Melinda and I had a guest on last week, and he's actually a, been a friend of mine for 25 years. He was one of the original six kind of investigators before the FBI even got involved in this. Jim, working out of Little Keene, New Hampshire, would go online and act like a 13 or 14-year-old boy. And 
he and this was long before these proliferation of social media sites. But I think Jim, over the course of the next 15 years, and he's been retired for a little bit, they prosecuted 850 individuals and I think 20-some countries. It was just enormous figures that have Mm -hmm. only grown exponentially. So when we look as a business, I'm a business owner, I'm mitigating risk, right? We're looking at, you know, how do we lower our risk? We do background checks, we do these different things. As a platform, you have to know this is a major playground for, for pedophiles, right? You would think. And I, I think that's pretty common knowledge. I know you, you obviously were doing work in a similar field to me back through your career. So maybe it's more apparent to people in your position or mine. But for every parent listening to your show, everything you said is accurate. This is uh, the Internet is a playground for pedophiles. And just like you wouldn't invite a stranger to walk into your house and walk into your child's room. The minute they hook into the Internet, connect with social media, mm-hmm. there are so many strangers trying to connect with them. And some of them might be legitimate, but there are many that are not. And we have no way of knowing that. So obviously the safest thing for children, especially teenagers, which are right. Yes. picking. Yes. Is to not talk to strangers. And I want to note that when, when we teach children about stranger danger, everyone that has kids is, is operating from the position when we were children, right? We didn't have the internet when we were kids. So when you're in a position where you're now in a world of the internet, I think what, what people forget about is that stranger danger is not as simple as I'm walking down the street and see it, see a man jump out of a white van. Mm-hmm. Stranger danger is the person who, when the child is 11 years old, says, hey, how are you? There's nothing sexual about it. There's nothing inappropriate about it. But three years later, that person is still a stranger. And even though that child's been talking to that person for three years and grooming them the entire time, nonetheless, that person is still a stranger. And that's that's the long game that that traffickers and and exploiters take, is they play the long game to lure the child in and gain their trust, and the child never sees it coming. Wow. Well, Lisa, I heard a lot during this political season about the Section 230 and the application to the social media companies. How does that factor into this? I'm not an attorney. And as I'm listening to this, it seems that they have kind of a free pass to not be liable for stuff posted, but yet they've been given some authority to block or ban. How does that play into this at all? So it's an interesting question. The short version of 230, and just so everyone knows what we're talking about, it's called the Communications Decency Act. It came out in 1996 and was essentially around roughly the time of when the internet really started taking off. Congress put into place this, this act that has many, many components, but Section 230 of that act talks about that if an internet provider is operating and an internet provider who has a platform that many other individuals can post on. So like, for example, a message board or Twitter is a perfect Mm -hmm. example. You know, these are the kinds of of platforms that you have third parties posting all over the platform. And the thought was, and this is somewhat put into the statute there. Remember, it's called the Communications Decency Act. They do the decent thing and remove something that's inappropriate. Let's say there was child pornography that was was apparent or readily available on on this particular platform. They removed it. And somebody wanted to come after them for, you know, denying them speech, defamation, you name it. They should have an immunity to protect them because they were trying to do the right thing. And they shouldn't be punished, similar to Good Samaritan laws, for trying to act in accordance with a good, good intent. And that's a very simplistic explanation of it. But the way that courts have interpreted the same statute over the course of the last 20 years is that they have broadly expanded that immunity provision. And as it sits today, that immunity provision has been expanded so substantially that big tech as a whole 
can pretty much avoid liability for almost anything that's posted on their platform. Mm. And so about two years ago, that came into question. If you recall, there was a huge case against Backpage, which... Oh, yes. Right. And for people that aren't familiar with that, Backpage is going to be... It was basically a hub for human trafficking. It was a website that allowed people to be bought and sold. Pimps used to sell their, their victims on it and sex workers would post on it. But it was essentially, if you wanted to buy sex, that's where you went. Well, that's now been shut down, thankfully. But during the time it was operational, it became very apparent that the website not only knew, but was participating not only in the content creation, but also in helping traffickers and profiting from it. So they created a, an exception to 230 in 2018 called FOSTA-SESTA. And what that basically did is created a, an exception to the rule that allowed if your platform is contains human trafficking, you do have a duty to deter that, to stop it, and to not allow it to continue. So our lawsuit squ- falls squarely within that exception to the 230 immunity. Okay. So it has those two statutes in 2018, the FOSTA and SESTA, then puts a mandate, a legal mandate on them to block or stop that type of online sex trafficking or child pornography? Correct. And of course, you're going to have the normal things you have in law. You need to have certain notice requirements and the ability to know what's happening. But assuming all those threshold questions are met, then yes, they have an absolute obligation to not allow them to trafficking to happen on the platform. Interesting. And as you mentioned those hashtags earlier, I mean, I'm just trying to reconcile. I'm a techie. We own technology security systems and we use all kinds of AI and algorithms to do things. It sure feels like skimming through this lawsuit that most of this was a manual review, like there's not technology in place to block or is there a reason why that you know, like those hashtags and things that are known would not be, I mean, I know it'd be a continual battle all the time, but nothing in place technology-wise other than a human review of information? So I don't know that I can answer that question without doing some more investigative work as our lawsuit progresses. But I mean, I can tell you that it's very possible if there are AIs at work, it's very possible there is human review. I don't know that we're going to know the answer until we get into discovery. I did see somewhere in either a summary or the lawsuit itself that there was an allegation that there was profiting on this. And so mm-hmm. could you explain what that means? Yeah. Yes, of course. So Twitter, from what we what we know so far, profits in two main ways. They profit through advertising. So when you look down a Twitter feed and you're reading the different tweets, you'll have targeted advertising maintained throughout the tweet thread. And the other way is they have data licensing. So all the data that's currently on the platform, you know, obviously can be distributed to third party providers for certain fees. So between those two methods, you're going to have profit being made by Twitter and Twitter does very well. I mean, they are my last review of, of what their profits were, what they were in the billions. So they, they make a tremendous amount of money. But if you're taking down tweets constantly that before when posted were bringing viewers and allowing people to see it, every single tweet that you have up there is making profit for Twitter through those two means that we discussed. Mm. Now, if you're removing tweets, that potentially could deter profits. So by leaving John Doe's video up, by allowing the excessive amount of viewage and retweets to occur that happened on Twitter's platform, Twitter directly profited from the exploitation of human trafficking in John Doe. When you talked about the numbers that it was shared to in, in the retweets, the people that retweet, do they have any accountability in what they are sending out? Or is it strictly a corporate 
the corporate entity that, you know, has the liability or for better lack of words, accountability? No, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, in our case, we had two boys in the uh, it was a compilation video of, of numerous images of John Doe's trafficking situation. One of one or more of those videos also included another minor. Mm-hmm. Out of the individuals included in this, there was some commentary under the image that expressed that some of the viewers of those images believe these to be children and wanted them removed. Along with that, though, aside from the, some of the commentary on that. If an individual is retweeting something that they know to be child pornography, yes, they have committed a federal crime and they could absolutely be held accountable for that. Mm-hmm. If somebody is not sure or is unknown as to the age of the individual and it wasn't readily apparent or it couldn't be proven to be known, then arguably if they thought they were transmitting adult pornography, that, that might change the analysis. So mm. I know that that gets a little bit complicated, especially when you're dealing with the children. Because one of mm-hmm. the elements of proof is that you have to prove the age of the child. But it certainly is a dangerous game to play when you're transmitting pornography online if right. pornography is apparently very young. Right. And I understood that this started on Snapchat originally, and that's where the first engagement and then the intimidation and ex- trying to exploit them for more photos. And then it ended up on Twitter. Just out of curiosity, is there a parallel criminal investigation? Are these known individuals that were ever tracked or do we, we know anything about that? There was a criminal investigation done into the images themselves that were transferred on Snapchat as of today's date the traffickers remain unknown. And I understand that quite well. We've got a partner, a new partner, and uh, they come out of kind of high-level government, special forces, military, and other entities that have built a platform, primarily for law enforcement, but it's to help them with human trafficking because they have so much data mm-hmm. worldwide to connect kind of the sophistication of the human trafficking. I think a lot of people just don't understand. They just think about, you know, somebody's bringing a few people over the border. Well, I think it lends itself to teaching our children to be careful online. But now we have extraordinarily sophisticated investigators that have Mm -hmm. a hard time tracking down and figuring out who these individuals are. I mean, that just goes to the heart of how good they are at what they do. I might add, uh, Lisa, you, you talked about Snapchat, and I, I have a teenager, and I tell you, Snapchat is, and I will underline, the means of communication. She thinks I'm prehistoric because I have Facebook. And, um, Insta- well, they do a little Instagram and Twitter, right? She's like, mom. But they, they text, but uh, you know, they, they really look at you like you're foreign if you actually you know, make a call to somebody. Everything they do is Snapchat. And it's a huge, just that alone is a huge platform. No, you're right. And actually, one of the things we see a lot with Snapchat that is so concerning is that I think children have this false sense of security with Snapchat because the yes. image goes away, right? Yes. So I can yes. say whatever I want and it goes away. Exactly. Nobody will have it. And they don't realize that it is so easy to screenshot or capture or photograph an image on Snapchat and it is preserved forever. So it doesn't necessarily go away, but I think children take risks on Snapchat. Yes, they do. A lot that they normally wouldn't have if they thought there was going to be a record of it and it is often right. blackmailed just like this case. So, and in this case, yeah, exactly, on with it, with it showing up on Twitter, it obviously had been screenshotted or had been saved. No, absolutely. And I mean, when, when John Doe was first on Snapchat, it wasn't that he was out there 
thinking this was going to go away and didn't have a care in the world. I mean, rather the opposite. He had a, a person who was posing as a 16 year old girl. Mm. I need to be somebody who knew him, reached out to him and they sent John Doe a, a image of their body and mm-hmm. requested one in exchange and being a 13 year old boy, whether you like it or not. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the mind of a 13 year old boy is not a place where I would like to live, but, um, <laughs> but it, it certainly, it certainly is what it is. And yes. he, he reciprocated and that, that single moment turned into immediate blackmail and exploitation. Mm. And it became, I'm going to tell all the people you love. I'm going to tell your pastor, your coach, your mom, mm-hmm. your dad, you name it, unless you do what I want. And that's why John Doe started being blackmailed and exploited. And he truly believed that mm. these traffickers would make, make good on their threats and you know, put his family in harm's way. Well, as we kind of start to wrap up, we talked a little bit about this isolated or systemic. Do you have any sense, because you spend so much time in this niche space, how big, how large is this problem across the social media platforms? Well, I think to understand that, I'm going to, I'm going to answer it by answering something else first. It's a huge problem. It's in every community. It's in every walk of life. Anybody who's out there thinking that's really, really tragic for those other people, but it wouldn't happen to my family is living in a fantasy land. It happens. I've had clients and dealt with victims of human trafficking from every race, gender, nationality, age, means, you know, broken homes, great homes. It does, human trafficking is not to pick its victims based on demographic. It picks, picks its vi- victims based on vulnerability. And every teenager is vulnerable because they're doing the normal teenager things. They're, That's right. They have emotions. They have hormones. They have vulnerability. So everybody is at risk. And I say that because that means it's in every community. And it's every single time you have a trafficker out there, they're looking for their next victim. And what better place to find them is it think of the mind of a trafficker. They can walk down the street and risk exposure. They could be seen, they could be stopped, they could be questioned, they could be apprehended. But if they hide behind a computer and they take certain mechanisms to hide their identity, they can groom child after child until they find their next victim. And they, they have a much, much lesser exposure being caught. So that is the preferred mechanism for traffickers now, is through the online social media platforms. And wherever the kids go, traffickers are going to well, Lisa, I think you've captured it well, kind of what you're what you're doing, and we appreciate the fight you're taking on to protect our kids. So thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. No, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And Lisa, we would love to have you and Peter, who's also another attorney at the center, uh, the National Center, rejoin us as you get further in or you have updates or new things to share. We would welcome you to come back. Thank you. No, we'd be happy to. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you both. Have a great day. You too. Goodbye. Take care. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Ministry Solutions, which offers a 360 security solution that keeps your church, your congregation, and your ministry safe.